Perez. We've had some friends from uh, Red Mountain Baptist Church in North Carolina here. They did all kinds of work on the building. Sort of my vision for their partnership in the building, at least, was to help us eliminate dead zones. Because if you've walked around our building, you know, the second floor classrooms are nice, the third floor classrooms are pretty nice, and we're trying to, you know, as the months go, put together a complete building that is, uh, we can be proud of, that people can, can enjoy, that people can use, that is beautiful and functional. And so they helped us clear out the, the stairwell and clean it and get some fresh paint in there. They helped us fix some walls that were uh, damaged throughout the years. Um, they helped us paint some doors that needed painted. We did all kinds of work together on the building. Then on Friday night, we handed out popsicles and Gatorade to folks heading to the levee. I think everyone from the Civic Center to the Capitol knew that there were free popsicles and Gatorade here because our guys were awesome. And then on Saturday, we did some door-to-door -door stuff, uh, getting surveys, basically sending, our, sending the teams out to ask, um, what's your faith background? Uh, if there's any needs in the community that the church could help meet, what would those be? Uh, how could we serve you? So that data will really help us uh, build long-term relationships as we continue the work of planting. So give it up for our friends from Red Mountain. They're here this morning. One of the guys, his name's Wally, and I wish we were, he was in my family because I'm married to Holly. My sister is Molly, and I just wish like Wally was like my uncle or something. Like, Holly, Molly, Wally, y'all here? All right, we're good. You know, I think that would be, I think that would be really awesome. But unfortunately, we're not. We're related in Christ, I guess, Uncle Wally. Uh, I'll call you that for the rest of our lives now. Last week, we really jumped headfirst into our series, Engage, by laying out a theology of the tongue, a theology of the tongue. And what that means is we help ask, we ask the question, how does our knowledge of God impact the way we talk? And we came down on three things to help us move towards a biblical theology of the tongue. We should speak with awareness. We should speak with awareness that the things we say matter, right? James tells teachers, you shouldn't be very many teachers. You should aspire to that office, that task, very delicately because you're judged for the things that you say. Speak with awareness that what you say matters. Second, speak with purpose. If I'm not speaking to build up, if I'm not speaking to share truth, if I'm not speaking for a reason that is right and good, then why am I speaking? And finally, speak with grace. Let everything we say be seasoned with salt, right? Let everything we say be said in grace to build up. This morning, we'll work towards a theology of the ear. We'll think about how our knowledge of God informs the way we listen to other people, the way we listen to targeted communication, right? Like if we were in a conversation with a coworker or a spouse or a friend, that kind of communication, and really the way we listen to the world broadly. I cannot stress this enough before we dive in. This is not just cultural commentary. This is not something that other people in the church need to adapt. This is something for me. This is something for you. This is something for all of us. This is God's wisdom for us to obey. So in the same form as last week's sermon, three things towards a theology of the ear. If you're taking notes, thing one, consider where your head is. Consider where your head is. We'll unpack that in a moment. Number two, listen with humility. Listen with humility. And finally, number three, 
listen with confidence. Listen with confidence. If you're a skeptic like me, one of my spiritual flaws is I'm somewhat cynical. So when I go to a, a thing, I'm like sitting there like judging it. And I have to really be aware that that's not right, that's not healthy, that's not good. Um, and so we could be like, man, is this just advice? And I would argue this morning that we spend all of our lives, or almost all of our lives, listening in some form or fashion, reading, taking information in. And I think we need to ask the most fundamental questions about that. How does our knowledge of who God is impact my posture towards the world? How does it impact the way I listen to people in the church? How does it impact the way I listen to enemies and news pundits and talk radio hosts and teachers and professors alike? How can I take in the world with the awareness that God is in control, that God is with me, and God wants me to live a certain way. Before we jump into the text, I gotta back up and remind you with an announcement because I forgot in the announcements portion, I got carried away with the Holly Molly Wally stuff. Um, we have lunch, a little picnic after church this morning uh, at Recovery. Uh, they're catering it for us. Well, we're paying for it, obviously. But. And we've got plenty of food, so at the end of the service, I would love, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. That's sort of like beginning our fellowship, right? And we're going to continue that fellowship in the in sort of in the pattern of the early saints as we walk over to recovery and, and have a full meal together. So I really hope you plan on joining us for that, um, for, some, for some food at recovery. With that said, let's jump into the text, James chapter 1, verses 19 through 26. The first step towards building a healthy theology of the ear is to consider where your head is. Are you ready for something profound? If you're taking notes, remember your ear is attached to your head. Your ear is attached to your head. We'll get a little bit more profound, I guess, but not really. Where you are will determine what you hear. Where you are will determine what you here, in a world constantly vying for our attention. I can't remember the numbers, so I'm not even going to guess, but there's an astronomical number of advertisements that we see in a day. And with our increasing screen time, spending between four to eight hours on devices, that's not counting the televisions in front of us, not counting the billboards we see naturally, the number of things that are trying to grab our attention is only increasing. So my question for us is, where are we listening? James 1, 19 to 26, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Let's look at that initial command. Be quick to hear, be slow to speak, and be slow to anger. You've heard the old adage, God gave us two ears and one mouth, so we should listen twice as much as we talk. That's a bit of sort of folklore that's really good and really helpful. There's some wisdom there that stands in the tradition of the Hebrew Proverbs, be quiet and listen. But James is making a larger point than simple social commentary in these moments. If we look at the text as a whole, we see that the command to hear 
is couched in broader teaching about God's word. Look back in verse 18. Verse 18 said, of his own will, he brought us forth by what? The word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Meaning, of God's own will, he brought us forth, who's us, the church, God's people. He brought us forth, how? By his word. Why? That we might be a first fruits, that we might be like that first batch of cookies to say more cookies are coming, right? that we might be the first fruits of his creatures, that we might be that first taste to the rest of the world what all the world is going to be like when King Jesus rules and reigns here forevermore. He's done this by his word. We hear his word and we respond to his word and we are formed into a people. Verse 21, he tells us to put away filthiness and wickedness and receive what? The word. In verse 22, he goes on to say, do not simply hear the word, but do the word. And then he demonstrates how silly or how frivolous it would be to hear the word and not do the word. Let's just read in verse 21, right? Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness. I think the concept of meekness, we need to study a lot, but that's a sidebar. And receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Some of us then are deceiving ourselves because we're hearing the word, but we're not doing the word. And we think we're all good because we keep hearing the word, but we're not doing the word. So things aren't as they seem and we are in for a rude awakening either in this life or the next. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, the one who looks into the word, the one who looks into the law, the one who looks into God's word and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. He will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he's religious, James says, and does not bridle his tongue, hearkening back to our sermon last week, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion is pure and undefiled before God, the kind of religion that is right, the kind of religion that God likes, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The kind of religion that God likes cares about the least of these. The kind of religion God likes moves us to acts of love, service, and compassion. The kind of religion God likes also keeps us unstained from the world. A doer who acts will be blessed in his doing. Religion that God likes is a hearer and a doer. So here's our point this morning. Hear and receive the word of God. It's hearing that word and doing that word. That's the kind of religion God likes. So here's where we're going if you're taking notes. Do I hear the word? Some of us can't hear the word because our heads aren't in the word. 
We're not putting away filthiness. We're not putting away wickedness. And we're not receiving the word which is able to save our souls. James is teaching your anger, it's not doing anything. It's not creating anything. The anger of man does not create the righteousness of God. What does create the righteousness of God? The implanted word which is able to save your souls. So consider where our heads are. Consider what we're listening to. Am I allowing into my mind, first and foremost, God's word? Or am I barely able to hear God's word because everything else is drowning it out? What are you listening to? What are you reading? What are you watching? This isn't legalism. This is sanctification. Are you constantly watching the performance others make for you on social media? If so, chances are your life is just a performance right along with them. Are you constantly reading sarcastic memes and rude jokes and one-liners meant to hurt other people and not give them the benefit of the doubt? If so, you're probably pretty sarcastic and rude. Are you constantly watching the news, your favorite station, the one that's right, of course, in your mind? Or are you listening to radio commentators, the one who really get it in your mind? These guys and gals want you mad and scared, and if you're constantly letting that shape your world, you will be mad and scared, and they will make a lot of money off of the clicks, ears, and eyeballs the people of God who live in fear choose to give them over the Word of God, which tells us to live without fear. That was a little preachy. You're welcome. I think about Paul's words to the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter 4. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Focus on the Word. Let the Word be the central part of our life. The Word forms our identity. The Word informs our philosophies about life. The Word informs the advice we give. The Word informs the way we vote. The Word informs the way we do everything that we do. And on top of and around that, the other things we're putting in our minds should be honorable. They should be just. They should be right. They should be pure. They should be lovely. There should be beauty. I think about how God made a beautiful world, not just a functional one. Think about beauty. Think about great music. Think about great art. Pursue great music. Pursue great art. Pursue beauty. Fix your minds on it. Think about all the things that are worthy of praise. When your kid works really hard for a, a dance recital and you go to the dance recital, celebrate that dance recital because they've worked really hard and that's worthy of praise and it's right and good to sit there, watch that and listen to that and even videotape that. You don't do this anymore, you do this now with your phones, I guess. It's right to sit there and video that and cheer for them because that's worthy of praise. That has been hard work. In all of life, set our minds on these true, right, just, good, beautiful, praiseworthy things. I did not have that perspective on dance recitals growing up with Molly Ballard. Church, let's get our heads where they need to be. Let's hear God's word above everything else and understand that everything the, words, the world is selling us, we don't have to listen to. I'm going to zone in on this next week when we set forth the theology of the phone, the modern day body part that we now have. But I cannot stress this enough, there is no need to constantly consume information. 
No one is forcing you to read your Facebook newsfeed or your Twitter timeline. We spend a lot of time complaining it, and we don't really need to always be there in the first place. Let's incline our ears to God. That was the longest one. Point two, listen with humility. Listen with humility. Towards building a theology of the ear, we've now laid a foundation. The posture from which we live all of life is this, with our heads and our ears inclined to God, that we may be hearers and doers of the word. So now as a hearer and doer of God's word, that's my posture towards God and all of life. How do I interact with other, other people? How do I interact with the news feeds that I'm reading? How do I interact with the conversations that I'm having with my friends and enemies alike? What posture do I take towards other people? 1 Peter 5.5. 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Peter's teaching about sort of relationships and roles within the church. And then he says, clothe yourselves, all of you, all of you. This is young, this is old, this is smart, this is not so smart, this is old believer, this is new believer. Everybody, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Why? For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. All of you, clothe yourselves in humility. It sounds like a theme, an idea, a truth that comes forth in all of Scripture. Jesus teaches when you get to a banquet, do you take the best seat? No, you take the worst seat. And then the master of the house, when he comes, he'll elevate you in due time. He tells the Philippians, right, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Do nothing from selfish ambi ambition or conceit, but count other people more significant than yourself. Meaning, when I, when I come to preach, I'm not supposed to say, hey, how can I preach in such a way that they'll leave really impressed with me? Instead, it should be, how can this best feed God's sheep? When you come to a conversation, it's not, how can I get my point across? How can I be heard? It's, how can I listen with this, to this person with integrity? How can they be heard? I'm not concerned with having my way here. I'm more concerned with this other person. My posture towards them is one of humility. Therefore, my interactions with them are going to be humble. Imagine a picture as we get sort of a bird's eye view of this whole series for just a moment. Imagine a picture of someone speaking with awareness, with purpose, and with grace, and someone listening whose hearts are inclined to God and whose ears are inclined to God and who are listening humbly. Imagine that picture of communication. That is how God intends for us to interact with everybody. So how can I listen humbly? How can I listen humbly? Four things. This is just sort of my thoughts here. I think they're somewhat helpful. They've been helpful for me. I used to get really fired up about a lot of stuff. I used to get really, really bitter about a lot of stuff. Like if you came at me on Facebook, I hated you. <laughs> I didn't like you, man. I mean, if you came at me on Facebook and we disagreed on something, then I, you were my enemy, and you were never getting the benefit of the doubt, and I thought I was better than you, and that's just how it was going to be. But over the years, uh, the Lord has softened my heart, and these four things are things that I've learned and that I implement, and they've helped me love other people well. Here's point number one. I can be wrong. <laughs> I can be wrong. Like, I... I cannot listen to sermons I preached before 2016. I don't listen to them. I refuse. I mean, if, if I were ever abducted and put in, like, prison, I, and they started playing 
sermons of mine from before 2016, I don't know if I could take it. I mean, that'd be like them turning on like Creed or Nickelback. I mean, I would be sitting there, I'd be like, this is just torturous. I, I, what is going on? Like, this is unfair. This is not justice. It's just cruel. And it's not always that I, what I said, I think that's wrong. It's just my tone and the way I delivered it. I'm like, oh, that's not good. Meaning, if I change my mind about things I said three years ago, that means I'm wrong about something today that I'll find out I'm wrong about three years from now. My politics are probably wrong. I know nothing about how policies work themselves out in the real world, and most of us don't either. My interpretation of tricky texts in the Bible, I might be wrong. People I think are wrong, they might be right. The things I want, they, my desires, they may be wrong. If I approach everyone else as if I'm the expert on everything, I am thinking neither rightly of myself, because that's not true, and I'm also thinking not humbly. And our communication will not be helpful, it will not be fulfilling, no one will learn anything. And even if I am right, no one will be influenced by my position. I have to come into every conversation, this is the available data I have, this is the decision I've made based on that available data, but I could be wrong, let's talk about your perspective on this. I can be wrong. Point two, my ex this is huge, man, my experience is not normative. My experience is not normative. I am shaped, and all of us are shaped, by too many influences to count. If I were born to a Muslim mother and father in Islamabad, Pakistan, I would be a different person than I am today. If my parents were in a different socioeconomic class, if they had different jobs, if they had a different relationship with one another, if we lived in a different place, near a different school, near a different church, all of those variables have helped shape me. And if any of those change, I'm not who I am right now. So my experience, I cannot help but bring that to the way I interact with people. And I must understand that not everyone has the experience I have. We have got to stop telling minorities, people of color, women, this is what you should think, this is what's true, and start listening to the experiences that people have, not being the police of whether they're right or wrong. Do I seriously expect everyone else to view the world the way that I do? I am the sum of my experiences, and all of us are. That doesn't mean there is no truth, and we'll get to there in just a moment, but what it does mean what it does mean is that I can enter conversations with grace, understanding how I've been shaped by the many influences in my life. Three, the gospel is of first importance. The gospel is of first importance. First Corinthians 15, I passed on to you that which was delivered to me, that which is of first importance. Something being of first importance implies that something could be of second or of third importance. Everything may be important. The things we talk about, the things we argue about, they may be important. But not everything is of the most importance. Love the person making the argument, even if you hate the argument that you're listening to. I'm not saying don't have opinions. I'm not saying don't disagree. I'm not saying that there is no truth. I'm not saying any of that. I'm saying hold the gospel more precious than anything else. Because I may be wrong about a lot of stuff, man. 
But I am not wrong about this, that Jesus Christ was dead and Jesus Christ is resurrected and Jesus Christ is alive and Jesus Christ will return to rule forevermore. And I boast in nothing but him. And four, as we wind our way to the end of this point and into the next, four, it's gonna be all right. It's gonna be all right. Leads me to our final step, to listen with confidence. I listen humbly because life is not about me. And I listen confidently because I know how this thing ends. I think about Jesus and his crucifixion. If you have your Bibles, flip over to Isaiah 53. Think about that crucifixion episode, right? That crucifixion narrative where Jesus is going to his death. Think about how noisy it would have been. Think about all the stuff he's hearing. Think about all the things he's listening to. Think about the cries from his enemies. I think about Pilate basically pleading, please man, make your case, I don't wanna kill you. He hears it all. Then I think about Isaiah 53, seven, where the prophet Isaiah is looking ahead to this moment. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus in the face of great evil stood silently. He heard it all, he listened to every word, and he didn't respond. Why not? Because they were right? No. Because he was confident. Because he knew what was really happening. And right there, in the silence of the righteous, in the shouts of the wicked, Jesus saved the world. Not with a fancy sermon, not by showing them with brute force and power, not by owning them, not by answering all their questions, but by dying for them. Church, we engage the world. We care about the problems of the world because we care about our neighbors. We care about the vulnerable. Religion that's pure and undefiled means caring for orphans and widows, right? The prophets all care about justice and fairness and equity and things being right in the world. But guys, we know how this is going to end. I saw a clip floating around on Facebook of the 2006 Nokia Sugar Bowl. Let the righteous remember. The West Virginia Mountaineers were entering sort of that kind of golden season of uh, our, our football program where we rattled off a few BCS wins. They were playing Atlanta because the hurricane moved the Sugar Bowl from its home in New Orleans. They were playing the Georgia Bulldogs. Sorry, Katie, it's a, the, you know, the, the metaphor just works with the sermon. We're playing the Georgia Bulldogs, and of course that team from the Big East has no chance against, you know, Georgia. And if you remember the game, we jumped out to a huge lead. 
and Pat White and Steve Slate. I mean, Steve Slayton runs like 220 yards. I mean, them boys are out there. They're playing hard. They're scoring. We come out to a huge lead. But then guess what happens? What always happens to West Virginia? We let ourselves down. And so all of a sudden, this huge lead we've built up, and we're all, I mean, we're going nuts. I mean, I'm a 13-year-old football-obsessed maniac, and I'm just going nuts. I never thought I'd see anything like this. And then slowly but surely, we stop scoring. And they keep scoring. And with a minute and a half left, a minute 38, but who, who cares? With about a minute and a half left in the game, it's fourth down and, and long. And we're punting, and the score is 38 to 35. We're only up by three points. And it's almost like it was already over, like we already lost. We've all seen this, like if you're a Mountaineer fan, you've seen this movie before. Like, you just kind of get hardened to the world that we live in, you know? Uh, I'm not upset about it at all, at all. I'll be fine one day when Jesus returns. We've seen the, we knew it was gonna happen. We're gonna punt it away here. They're gonna get it. They're gonna march right down the field. They're gonna go and score a touchdown or kick a field goal and then win in overtime. You'll never forget the moment in our home when the long snap comes back, the punter takes the ball and he doesn't punt it. And Phil Brady, who now lives in Mountaineer Lore, he takes off running for the first down. And it's like your stomach just drops because you see him running towards that pylon. You're like, oh my gosh, he's faking the punt at the end of the Sugar Bowl. And he runs and he gets the first down. And there's that moment where he takes off running before he gets to the first down. And right after he's decided he's not punting, we're all like, no, no, no. And then it turns into yes, yes, yes. And that anxiety, that sort of... That, that everything's on the line in that moment. And I'm, I'm watching it knowing that if he doesn't get this, we are going to lose. But then 13 years later, a couple of days ago, I watched that clip again. And how did I watch it this time? I was scrolling. Oh, so, oh I'm going to watch this one. I, I click it, I turn up my volume, kick my feet up, watch it, you know. And I enjoy every moment of it. And I get excited when I see him take off for the fake punt. But guess what doesn't happen? My stomach doesn't turn. It doesn't get all knotted up. Why? Because I know Phil Brady converts it. I know he makes it. I know we win the game. I know how it ends. I'm free to watch the game, enjoy the game, enjoy the moment, enjoy the emotions, and because I know everything works itself out. And as Christians, that's kind of how we approach the world. We don't approach it in the sense of nothing matters, everything's irrelevant. Scripture's clear we should not do that. But we approach it with a sense of, I know how this thing ends. Everything's not on the line in my interactions with the rest of the world, that Jesus will have his way. I don't have to be afraid about everything. I don't have to be angry about everything. I don't have to be anxious about everything. I can pay attention to where my head is. I can focus on God above the noise and then engage the world on his terms and on our terms instead of on their terms. I can listen humbly to people who don't like me. I 
I can listen humbly to people who disagree with me, even though there's a lot I want to say. And I can listen confidently because I know that I'm not the one who's bringing all of these things to pass. That King Jesus rules and reigns. And one day, the eastern skies will explode and it's going to feel a whole lot better than when Phil Brady converted that fourth down against the Georgia Bulldogs. God is actively working for his glory and our good throughout all of human history, bringing about his desired outcome. Worship team, if you guys would come up onto the stage. This morning, church, may this theology of the ear lead us into healthy days. We do this better than we did this, but we don't do this as good as we will do this. We're a work in process. May we be people who are quick to speak, or quick to listen, that would be contradictory. Quick to listen, and slow to speak, and slow to anger. In just a moment, we're gonna approach the Lord's table and what I love about the Lord's table, one of the many things, is as we gather around it in this moment in space and time, we're also kind of like getting a glimpse above space and time. The Apostle Paul teaches that as we come to the table, we're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And that when we come to the table, we're looking three ways. We're looking back. We're looking back at something that really happened. A man named Jesus of Nazareth really lived, and he really died, and he really rose again, and he really ascended into heaven, and he's really there. We'll sing songs and not think about it. Oh, he lives within my heart. Yeah, he lives within your heart, but he also lives in a body. <laughs> he's alive. We look back at that event in history. We look around. There's to be no inequity or injustice. There's to be no bitterness and strife over the Lord's table. This is where we come and we learn what it means to be a sacrificial family. This is the table we gather around. This is the table that shapes us. This is the table that forms us. This is the table where all of us, from wherever we're from, whatever experiences we've had, we come and we say, we need Jesus the Christ to live. I need Jesus. And we take the bread and eat it and profess that. I need Jesus. And we take the blood and we profess that. And we look around at this family that God's given us that we learn to love. And finally, we look ahead. We look ahead to that day when the eastern sky breaks open and the Lamb returns. Having won his victory, not with a strong army or great rhetoric, but through sacrifice, by dying in our place. And in that moment, the rhetorical question will finally be answered. Can anything good come from Nazareth? And the whole world will see that the only thing good came from Nazareth. And the nations will bow and all evil will be judged, and all will be right. As we come to the Lord's table, we look ahead to that. 
That's our perspective. That's where our heads are. The only people who are of any earthly good are those who are really heavenly minded. And so I'm free to love the people that really drive me nuts. I'm free to love people that really don't like me. I'm free to love people I disagree with very, very strongly. And we can have something that is very rare. We can have a church where its members actually disagree on a lot of things. Imagine that. We can have a church who actually have policy disagreements about healthcare and about taxes and about gun control. Because something bigger than healthcare, taxes, and gun control has brought us into this family. And that's the blood of King Jesus. Where's your head at? Are you listening humbly? And are you listening with confidence that God's word is true, Jesus is alive, and God will have the last word? I'm going to pray and lead us into a moment of sort of prayer and reflection. Then I'm going to come down to the table and invite you forward. So I'm going to lead us in prayer, and then for a couple of moments, repent. Repent for allowing so much stuff to get in our heads and our ears. Repent for not listening to others humbly, for coming to conversations as one to talk instead of one to listen. And repent for the constant belief that everything's at stake in everything I do. We can rest because of who God is. Let's pray. Father, teach us how to follow you in the everyday stuff of life. Teach us, Lord, how to be citizens of the 21st century in such a way that we help people look to the man who lived in the first century. Help us engage wisely. Don't let us retreat into fear. Don't let us plow forth into conflict all the time. Give us wisdom and discernment when to talk, when to listen. But thank you, Lord, for these, these sort of plumb lines, these sort of ways to think about how we're listening and how we're speaking that your word has given us. Father, hear these prayers.